welcome to the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons that they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms parent in the same way, and we should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 324 of the podcast. It's Jessica, and my guest today is simply incredible. She is so incredible. Her name is Holly Christine Hayes, and she is a trafficking survivor, and now she is an activist. She owns an organization called The Sanctuary Project that employs women that have emerged out of trafficking and sexual exploitation, and it is unbelievable her story from where she was to where she is now she's a mother of one happily married in a safe relationship I mean it's amazing and it really just testifies to the fact that anything is possible no matter where you're at at any point in your life there's always hope and there's always something around the corner that it can be better than what you have right this second if you're currently struggling. So Holly is just a testament of that. We did have a few technical issues on my side. The recording for some reason lagged a little bit and it sometimes seems like maybe she's going to cut out or something. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened, but hopefully you can overcome that um, and understand her story fluently. Um, but that was that was my bad. But Holly's story is so amazing. I want to make sure that it gets into your ears today. So let's get to it with Holly Christine Hayes. All right. I'm so excited to be chatting with Holly Christine Hayes today. Hi, Holly. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. It's Friday. We made it. (laughs) We did it. (laughs) Hooray. Hooray. Yes. And we're recording election week, daylight savings week, and Halloween week. And I just feel like that's just not right. That all that in one in, in, within seven days. That's just wrong. I know, and I have my like big annual gala this weekend too. So Do it's you? also gala week for me. <gasps> so yeah, it's just it's everything this week, and and then moms on top of that. So oh my gosh, so pretty fun, <laughs> insane. Where do you live, uh, Holly? I'm in Austin, Texas. Wonderful. I love Austin, and I have a son named Austin, so I especially oh. love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Holly, for people that may not know you yet, we're, I'm just so honored and excited to learn more about your journey and and see how that has impacted your motherhood. But for people that don't know you yet, will you give a little background on yourself and your family? Absolutely. So I am founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization and social enterprise called Sanctuary Project. We employ and empower women coming out of trafficking, violence, and addiction here in Austin. Um, I am a survivor myself. I came out of that life about 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years in February. And everyone on our team has come out of that life as well. So everyone from our operations director down to the person who does our packaging and shipping um, is a survivor. And so it's 
it's just been an incredible journey um, running that organization. Uh, we have a jewelry line that just launched in Target.com. Um, so you can shop us now on Target.com, which I'm so, so, so excited about. And then my other role and my more important role, I am a wife and a mama. I just became a mom last year. I have a little one-year-old, 14 months now. And, um, and then we have a little farm, a little hobby farm here in Texas with a vineyard and a bunch of cute animals. So I'm also a goat mom and a chicken mom and a cow mom. <laughs> that just sounds so dreamy and picturesque. And it is. Oh, that, that's just so fun. Hey everyone, before we hop all the way into Holly's story, I wanted to thank a show sponsor and that is Vistaprint. And this holiday, Vistaprint is all about helping you create custom gifts that are personal that show the person you love exactly how you feel about them. I want you to think about how you feel when you receive a gift that you know wasn't just bought off the shelf, that's personalized just for you, whether it's a picture or a saying, you know that person thought of you and went to the time and effort to make something custom. That is what Vistaprint has to offer. They specialize in unregiftable gifts, gifts so unique and personal that they are literally one of a kind. At Vistaprint, you can create everything from custom mugs to canvas prints, photo books. I love their wall calendars. I do one of the standing calendars for all of our my parents, grandparents every single year, and it's a total hit, and it's affordable, and it's easy to make, but it seems super personalized, and they just love it so much and look forward to it every single year. At Vistaprint, you can also create your own personalized holiday cards, adding your photos, messages, and adding special finishing touches like embossed foil and scalloped edges. The quality is so, so good. So rather than giving an unoriginal gift this holiday, make an unregiftable gift with a custom gift at Vistaprint. Go to vistaprint.com EEP to get started on your unregiftable gift. The holidays are coming up, so don't miss your chance to get an unregiftable gift and you can get started today at vistaprint.com slash EEP. That's vistaprint.com slash EEP. Thanks to Vistaprint for sponsoring the show. Now let's get to it with the rest of Holly's story. 20 years ago, I bet you never could have even imagined living the life you are living today. Tell me about 20 years ago what did trafficking look like even 20 years ago? Because I'm sure it has evolved so much and there's, you know, so much more awareness around it. But I mean, I mean, certainly as a younger person, I was not aware of, of trafficking. Yeah. And I wasn't either, you know, um, I, I wouldn't have known that was what to, to a call, what was happening to me. I knew that the relationship was abusive and exploitive, um, but I didn't know that it was a trafficking situation until about 10 years ago and started learning about trafficking. And, um, and even then I thought trafficking was something that happened overseas. I thought it meant you were stolen from your village in rural Thailand and sold the big and um, then held in chains in a brothel somewhere. And that happens, and that is trafficking. Um, but what I didn't know was that the definition of sex trafficking was uh, is someone committing a commercial sex act through force, fraud, or coercion. And that, that fraud coercion um, was absolutely my situation. And um, I was in a relationship with my abuser, with my trafficker. Um, it was a violent relationship from the, from the very start. And um, it just kind of got more violent and more exploitive as it went on. So it was, it was about a year into the relationship that he started um, lining up jobs for me to um, have sex with other men. Mm. And I at the time felt so 
beholden to him. He had set up this dynamic where I had stopped paying the rent where I was living. And so I was evicted from the apartment I was subletting at the time. And so I had nowhere else to live but with him. And um, that was something he'd encouraged me to do. And so then I was living with him and he was, he was feeding me. He was, I was lost in addiction at that time as well. And he was keeping my addiction fed. And so I didn't really feel like I had another choice. And, um, you know, at the same time, I was so uncomfortable with what was happening that I kept getting drunk and high and not showing up for the jobs he was lining up for me. So he ended up kicking me out, um, which is how, how I actually hit bottom and, and ultimately ended up getting out of that situation. But I definitely wouldn't have known that it was trafficking. You know, there was yeah. so little information out there about what that is and what that means. And, um, you know, and, and even for the first several years, I was starting to volunteer in the anti-trafficking world. I would identify myself as a former sex worker thinking that in some way I had chosen that, even though I never chose that life. I didn't Mm. want that. Um, that was something he chose for me and, uh, and not something I even did successfully. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah, so it's an interesting, an interesting season. And, um, and I definitely, would not have imagined that I would be where I am today, having recovered from that and now being able to help so many other women find healing and hope and recovery too. Oh, well, bravo, bravo to you for, for doing the work to, to overcome that. Because I mean, I just hear of so many stories of people. My husband is a prosecutor and there's just so many situations where people just can't even see a different life for themselves. You know, and so they just get caught up in this trap. And so when you don't see modeling of healthy relationships, when you are stuck in a trap of dependency financially and physically and your food, I mean, all of those things wrapped up, how the heck are you supposed to know that there's an alternative that you could stand on your own two feet again? You know, it it, it takes a lot of awareness and just awareness that's not afforded to a lot of people who are stuck in a vicious cycle. You know, it could be a lot of different types of cycles, but this, this applies as well. Absolutely. I never would have been able to see a way out. I, you know, I, my addiction had to some dark places very early on where I ended up dropping out of high school at the age of 16 and, and didn't really have any other skills for living. And so I, you know, you, you called it, there's, there was a time when I just couldn't see a different life for myself. I was so economically vulnerable because of that abuse and that addiction. And then I had a criminal record on top of it. Um, You know, I kept getting arrested. And so then I was battling, you know, that as well and knew that my options just kept getting more and more limited the further down in this rabbit hole I went. And so so much of that, exactly what you're talking about is exactly why I built Sanctuary Project. Because if women are going to be given another chance, there has to be places that are willing to overlook, um, you know, the lack of education and the the criminal record and be willing to actually say, okay, I can see this woman as um, a victim of her circumstances and a victim of exploitation and a survivor of those things and not, um, and not someone that society should just cast off and write on. And so many times I think we stereotype the types of people that that are caught up in this, that do end up getting involved in this. And like you said, you even felt like it was somewhat voluntary on your part for years, you know, because you were so yes. brainwashed by it. And, and I'm curious to know about your family, like your parents, did they know what was going on? 
No, I mean, you know, when you talked about the stereotyping of, of the type of woman that this would happen to, you know, I'm not that stereotype. Right. Like I grew up in an upper, yeah, I grew up in an upper middle class home in the San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, I'm, uh, both my parents are uh, college professors and, um, and you know, I was, I, I was a, a good student, a good kid, um, involved in sports and activities and uh, excelled at musical theater and, um, you know, and ultimately got a degree in, in musical theater. And so in, in no ways would you see my life or my situation from the outside and say, oh, this is someone who would be prone to exploitation and to a trafficking situation. Um, oh. You know, and even statistically, I'm not right. Like right. statistically, we see more um, girls coming out of the foster care system, uh, those who are more economically vulnerable. But there was, you know, there were some factors in my young life that made me vulnerable. Um, I suffered from sexual abuse as a child. And so that made me vulnerable in the sense that I um, I had never had my sexuality treated in a healthy way. Mm. Um, you know, I, I associated sexuality with violence and um, and and with. Uh, and with a lack of choice and so that that set me up for failure and then that led to an addiction that also set me up for failure because that addiction started making choices for me and so it's really important that people understand that anyone could end up in this situation you know with with the right set of factors act against them and then you add to that some of those external factors like I'm not having parental supervision for someone else, you know, uh, and being in a foster care system, being more economically vulnerable. Um, unfortunately, race, things like that have a lot to do with a vulnerability to this. And if you were to add those factors in, um, you know, you can see how this happens to so many women and girls. And um, and you're right in saying, you know, this was this is not something that um, you know you would not stereotype me as it. Um, you ask about parental supervision, and you know my parents definitely didn't know this was going on. They um, they were uh, they knew my addiction had gotten bad. Um, my mom and I had actually stopped speaking for a while because of my addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but I was away from my family. I was on the other coast. I grew up in San Francisco, and I was in Boston at the time that this was happening. So that fa- that played a, a factor, and then. Well, I, I wasn't being open about what was going on. Um, I think they knew the relationship wasn't healthy and that it was probably dangerous. I think they knew that I was suffering from addiction, but they, they didn't know for years that, um, that this level of exploitation was happening. <sighs> wow. It's just every family's worst nightmare. It really, it really is. But I see how the perfect, unfortunate set of, of circumstances can, can lead with that. And when you got into this relationship with your abuser, it also sounds like it was okay at first, or is there any looking in hindsight or recommendations you would give to teenage girls getting into relationships? Um, do you think this is premeditated by him or do you think he also kind of evolved as, you know, as, as circumstances changed? I think it was a bit of both. You know, he he certainly recognized in me characteristics that would have made me ripe for exploitation. Um, I was extremely insecure. I was leading with my sexuality. Um, The relationship moved very quickly. And very quickly, he started to isolate me from my friends and family. Um, I I found out very early on that there were other women. I caught him in lies. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think looking back, all of the signs were there very early on. But I was in such a vulnerable place that I was just attracted to a dangerous situation. Mm. I knew that I knew he had, I knew he had a criminal record as well. I knew he had been violent in all his previous relationships. And 
um, very early on found out he was going to be violent with me. But all of those things, because of my, um, because of my unique, you know, set of circumstances, all of those things, unfortunately felt comfortable for me. Wow. And so in, in guiding our, you know, teenage daughters, when, when, they get there. I don't know how old yours are, but in guiding, in guiding our children, I think the, the most important and most valuable thing we can do is instill a sense of self-worth yeah. and value and identity in them from a really young age so that they grow up just knowing their value and knowing when to run if someone starts to show any signs of red flags. Um, you know, there's a lot we can't control with, with how much our children are exposed to the, these days. You know, this was before mm-hmm or social media. Now, almost all the trafficking cases we see, the first contact started on social media. Mm-hmm. The first contact came through Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook mm-hmm. um, because it's so easy for traffickers to find children who are vulnerable that way. They can tell from looking at someone's social media profile if you're insecure and you're putting yourself out there. They can tell what your vulnerabilities might be. And then if you think about like yourself at age 13 or, you know, myself at age 13, I mean, gosh, you're so insecure. And if a boy tells you you're pretty, you're just mm-hmm. like, okay, marry me, you know? Right. Um, and, and so I think that's a really important thing for us to remember as parents is like, make sure that, you know, make sure that you're the one telling them how beautiful they are. Make sure that they have good friends in their life we're instilling that sense of value in them so that they're not then in danger of a man or, um, you know, sometimes it's even a woman who's, who's the exploiter, someone coming along and um, giving them that sense of self and value from the outside, uh, particularly from social media where they can be vulnerable to, uh, to that exploitation. That is such interesting information. And when I think back in high school and I think about the girls that I perceived as most confident strong, powerful, leading with their sexuality a lot of times, like that to me was a sign of strength, right? And so it's so interesting that what you're saying is that your confidence and you were just so vulnerable and insecure and yet that was your move, right? Was leading with that sexuality and you probably came across very um, appealing and, and, and confident, but it was a guy's right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, I was, I was certainly popular with boys. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, because, because I was fun in that way. Um, and yeah. And with girls too, you know, I think, um, I, you know, I did, I did learn very early on that, that, that that was valued. And I think what's interesting is sometimes when people are talking about sexual exploitation or trafficking, they're like, oh, you know, the traffickers make them feel like they have no value. And, you know, these exploiters just make them feel like their sexuality has no value. But it's actually almost the opposite. Hmm. Like what happened for me was that for the first time, someone told me, you are valuable. Men will pay for you. And in my mind, because I had so many insecurities about my value, and then it was give it away all the time, right? I was this promiscuous young woman who was, or a girl even, you know, child, who was, um, who was, who was giving away my sexuality. When someone came along and told me your sexuality has value, it's this much, men will pay it. It felt empowering to me for a moment until I actually had to perform, until I actually had to mm-hmm. do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have to remember that too, that, that this version of value is actually um, speaking to something that is innate in us that says we have value. And society is almost telling women like, oh, your sexuality should be handed out to whoever wants it. 
And so it almost rang more true for me to have him say, oh, no, men will pay for it because I realized it is innately valuable. Now, of course, I know it's innately valuable and priceless and a gift right. that I give to my husband. <laughs> but, but at the time, I would not have been able to articulate why that made me feel good. But really, I do think that it was that, um, that it was a reiteration of a deep down sense of, of value around, around sexuality. So traffickers are smart and they know that, and they will play into that, that sort of innate sense that, that we as women do have value and that our sexuality is meant to be valued. That is certainly a different perception. I mean, you just think of of the sensationalization of movies and and taken and you know those types of yeah. films where it's like yeah they're abused they're treated so poorly and it's like how could anybody stay in that type of situation but for what you're talking about where you're being taken care of you're desensitized you're brainwashed and thinking that is where your value lies and only there i i see I, I get it. I get it. It's sad yeah. and it's awfully, you know, a brainwashed way of thinking, but I, I see how that can happen. And this is the case too, even in situations, you know, I've, I've worked in the brothels in Thailand and Cambodia and, and met girls there and talked with them there. And, and I see the same thing even there when they mm. have been really sold by parents from their villages and, and they are literally being held in, in the brothels and they still have that same sort of um, sense of brainwashing and, and, um, and this is, this is okay. I'm okay with it. I'm having fun. Um, it's, you know, it's that kind of typical Stockholm syndrome. And yeah. so I think that's, it is a misconception around trafficking that everyone who's being trafficked is somehow a victim just waiting to be rescued. Mm -hmm. And it's so much more nuanced than that. You know, I mean, I knew I wanted to be rescued from the violence in that relationship. I knew I wanted to be rescued rescued from addiction, but I never would have articulated that I needed to be rescued from a trafficking situation. Mm. And so when we as in the anti-trafficking movement talk about kind of a rescue effort, you know, it's, it's, it's so nuanced and there's so much work we have to do on the other side in working with girls and, and women who are coming out of it to rebuild their, their sense of, um, of self and value in a way that's healthy um, and even to rebuild their sense of having to like work for money or to be taken care of right because mm -hmm. if their trafficker has been keeping a roof over their head keeping them fed and you know essentially providing for their basic needs plus maybe keeping their hair done and their nails done yeah um, then and then they're rescued I put in quotes and they're and they're put in there all of a sudden you know 19 years old and having to fend for themselves it actually can feel like a step down in life. And so um, one of the things I always say in the anti-trafficking world when I have the opportunity to speak there is we have to do better than the pimps. Wow. Um, and what, the, what I mean by that is that we have to be better at caring for women in a post-trafficking situation than the pimps were at caring for them, which means we need to be giving them a good salary. We need to be making sure they're, they have a good roof over their head and and, you know, we need to make sure that, they're, that they feel they're, they have self-care, that they're getting their nails done, that they're able to get their hair done. And the, those things that kind of became basic needs that were taken care of by their traffickers, if we're not supplying the same um, or better, then it can become so tempting, especially early on for the girls to go back. That has never even occurred to me. Never, ever, ever. And yeah, I think it's that's why, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that is why the work you are now doing in creating your organization and employing um, women who have the similar background to you, like you get it. And it's hard to understand it from the outside. Like this helps so much hearing from you and 
getting to ask these questions and, and debunk these stereotypes and things like that because it does give you a different perspective. But actually having walked in those shoes and then being able to employ someone and you know that your employee knows you've been there and you're not looking yeah. at them a certain way and you're not trying to provide a life for them that you think they need, but they don't actually need, you know, it's kind of like the people that just come in as the rescuers, like you said, and just said like, okay, let me just rescue you. And let me, let me tell you what you need. But really it takes a lot of listening. I know the story of Holly's is so riveting. We want to keep going, but I did want to thank a show sponsor that makes this podcast possible. And that is Cove. So Cove is your migraine solution. No two migraines are alike. And if you have migraines, you know that's why Cove wants to help you find an FDA-approved treatment that works for your migraine. And you know what the best part is? It's all online. It's all online. So if you go to cove.com and complete a quick online consultation, a licensed doctor will recommend a treatment plan customized to your migraines and the prescription will be delivered to your door. And it's for as little as $10 a month. So just take minutes of your time, get a personalized treatment plan from 20 plus research backed doctor recommended migraine medications and get help today. And the thing is, so many moms put off their own personal health, self-care, and they just live with migraines, live with all kinds of health issues. And you don't have to. And especially because Cove has made it so easy to do it from your own home and you don't have to leave to go to a doctor. It's so incredible. And you can take care of your headaches today. There's no insurance needed, no trip to the pharmacy. It's all online. And I just want you to have more migraine-free days soon. My mother-in-law suffers with migraines and has for a very long time. And it is so sad to see the things she's had to miss out on because of migraines. And I know that you can identify. So that's why I was so excited to recommend Cove to her. And she is going to get started with her treatment very, very soon. So you can get started by going to withcove.com slash EEP for 50% off your first month of medication and free two-day shipping. That's 50% off your first month of medication and free two-day shipping at withcove.com slash EEP. That's spelled W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash EEP. Don't let migraines hold you back from happiness and better health. Check out Cove today. Now let's get to it with Holly. Yeah, you know, and that's, I think that's what's so special about the place we've built is, is that every single person there understands, you know, yeah. we've, all, we've all walked through it. And so there's no, um, you know, I, I, I call them like sort of the do-gooders. It's like well-meaning, um, you know, nonprofit founders or, um, or people that just their heart is broken, maybe that for this issue or this cause, mm-hmm. and they'll come in with a with just such heart and compassion for women who've experienced this kind of exploitation, but they can't really understand the nuances of it because yeah. they haven't walked through it. Yeah. And I, you know, I bless them. I'm so grateful that they're doing the work they're doing, and we need everybody. But but I do love what we've built and how it is survivor run and survivor informed in every way because. There is just this understanding of um, of what what we all need, mm-hmm. and the jewelry is not by accident. You know, I mean, so much of what I see is girls feeling like they were sort of in this 
um, in this lifestyle that where there was like, even if they weren't ever given the money, there was sort of like money of like around, mm-hmm. um, especially their traffickers would have money and the traffickers would treat them to things. And, um, and often that's things like jewelry or handbags or, you know, getting their nails and hair done. Like I said, those sort of girly things that help them feel um, beautiful or, or valued or make them feel better about the situation they're in. And, and so even, even working with jewelry is quite intentional on my part because I want the girls to come to work. I want our women to come to work and feel like they're around beautiful things all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so hard to go from a life um, where, where you're, uh, do, you know, in that sort of trauma and then around that kind of um, money, I guess, being thrown around and, and then to go and work at Taco Bell or mm-hmm. to go and try to get it off at a gas station. Um, but to come into jewelry business actually feels quite comfortable for a lot of these women. Um, a lot of times it helps to restore their sense of femininity and, and sense of value because they're around these beautiful things all day long. Oh, that is such a beautiful mission statement and intention behind Sanctuary Project. I just, I, I love that. So just tell people where, where can people find this new jewelry line? So we have a website, sanctuaryproject.com. You can shop directly there. And um, if I'm not sure if this is airing before the holidays, but if it is, you can uh, can shop our holiday sales. We'll have a whole bunch of holiday sales Great. coming up. And then we're now available as of Monday this week on target.com, which yes. is really exciting. Oh my gosh, Holly, look at you yeah. and look at your team. What a sense of pride. That is, wow, that's amazing. So how many years of your life was taken up by this, this chunk of your existence? And then what flipped the switch for you to realize, like we talked about before, there is another way. And was there any pivotal people that helped you to see that? So I, um, I started drinking and using drugs and, and, um, and, I guess, becoming sort of promiscuous uh, around the age of 14. And it, I was 21 by the time I was homeless and kicked by my tracker and um, and actually hit bottom and started to find a whole new life. Um, so it was seven years in all. Um, mm. But I, with Trafficker, it was two years from the ages of 19 to 21. And, you know, it's interesting because as a 21-year-old girl, all of a sudden I, you know, I met someone who got me into a recovery program and um, I've been sober since that day. So that was February 11th of 2001. So I'll have 20 years sober in, oh, in February. And Congratulations. And thank you. And, you know, what's what's interesting is, you know, you'd think that I would have just gone straight from that into like this empowered new way of living, but it was such a slow journey and such a long process. Um, you know, over the first five years, I was still really attracted to dangerous relationships. Um, I was still in, I was still finding myself in dangerous relationships. Um, I, I think it took probably a good 10 years before I felt confident in myself as a productive member of society. Um, I'd gotten kind of lucky in career early on, and um, and I started working in real estate young, and um, and, and did some flip projects, and in my sort of early twenties, and and um, and was able to keep my feet on the ground and keep my head above water. But I don't think I had any sense of confidence in myself as as an employee or um, or or especially as an entrepreneur. I think I always sort of felt this insecurity that I was a high school dropout and who got my GED, and then I had went back and got my uh, college degree in musical theater and just felt like, you know, what, what can I really give to the world? Um, 
I did. Uh, I did have a boss at one time tell me that that he he thought I was too entrepreneurial to be an employee, and it's funny because I took that, I took an insult. I was like, I think he's saying I'm really bad at like following directions. <laughs> but now that I've uh, actually become an entrepreneur and I'm running my own business, I actually think it was quite a compliment, and that he was saying that he saw uh, entrepreneurial in me, and um, and it's funny now too, like running a business. You know, I, um, I I worked before this. I worked in vocational ministry as a worship leader, which kind of using my music theater degree made a lot of sense. And um, and and but I, when I got married and my husband and I moved to Austin, I um, I I didn't know what I was going to do, and really then this dream of starting Sanctuary Project. And as I started to build it and um, and started to see it growing little by little, I realized I've kind of always been entrepreneurial. And, you know, I, I started selling drugs when I was like 17, I think. Oh. <laughs> and it, I built like a really great drug dealing business. Oh my I just, gosh. <laughs> like I was like because I saw the margins like I was like oh yeah. I can go buy ounces from like this guy and he's great and he'll get a great deal and then if I sell him over here like these guys don't have any access to good weed and so like I can sell it over here for this much and <laughs> I saw the margins and I like and then I was like I, I was always so frustrated that drug dealers weren't reliable like you would page them this was during pagers and uh -huh. you would page them and they like wouldn't get back to you for hours and I was like if I just offer a good customer service a quality product <laughs> and like you know, and it's something everyone wants. And like, I know, you know, I, I can, I can make the margins work. I could crush it. And so it's so funny because when I started this business, I was like, wow, all of my experience as a drug dealer is really coming in handy here. I understand margins. I understand supply and demand. I understand customer service. Oh my God. So the funniest part too, is that all of our jewelry comes in these little baggies and like, it looks like drug bags. And, so, and all of us have like, all of us were like drug addicts at one point. And so we call them dime bags. Like we have to like make fun of it and be like, Hey, where are the dime bags? And then we have scales because we have to weigh the jewelry to like have that data out there. Oh and my the scales are, are the drug scales we used to use. So even if you look at our, at our workshop, if you look at like our back room, it looks like a drug dealer's office. Cause we have like all these baggies everywhere and all gram scales. And it's pretty hilarious, but that it's amazing really how, funny. Not a thing is wasted, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I tend to point out in these interviews, like, how much the Lord prepares us in ways that we don't even realize we're being prepared for the next thing. And, Absolutely. you know, we, we, we can go ahead and draw that connection to, uh, you know, those building those entrepreneurial skills and the Lord not wasting those on you for, for future ventures that are a little more upstanding. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's funny because I tell the girls in jail that I go and speak in the jails yeah. and I tell them that I'm like, Hey, there's nothing God can't use. Yes. There is nothing you can't redeem. And you know, this is an opportunity for you to look at like, what, what were those skills you had? You know, yeah. you might have marketing skills you don't know about. You might have entrepreneurial skills you don't know about sales skills, negotiation skills. So it all just has to be redeemed. Right. Right? It does. And you're proof. You're proof of that, Holly. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so as as somebody that struggled with where their worth comes from and having these destructive relationships and like you said, even after getting out, still struggling with, you know, what kind of guys you would tend to be drawn towards because it's hard to just reinvent the wheel and, and to change yeah. the tastes and the norms that you're so accustomed to. So how did you even possibly a, go about finding your husband, a good guy, and B, 
how did you start to rebuild your confidence and discover that worth within yourself that showed you I am worthy no matter what, no matter my past and no matter my future? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I could say it happened overnight. Um, I think the more time I spent in, um, in relationship with God and the more time I spent just um, actually understanding how God sees me. And I think like, you know, we talk about the, um, the redemption piece, right? And I think that's part of it. Like the more I watched him redeem every aspect of my life and the more I saw him using those those little corners and crevices, the more I started to realize that, um, that perhaps he loved me all along mm. and, um, and actually that he saw my value from the very beginning. Um, and so I think, I think just time spent with God really over the years and, and understanding my value, understanding my, my worth, understanding my identity in Christ, you know, and then, and then practice, like, I had to practice dating good guys. Like I actually had to, you know, take up of every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Mm -hmm. I actually had to like force myself um, to, I remember like thinking, this is a nice guy. I should go out on a date with him. You know, like yeah. I would like force myself to, um, to go out on dates with people that, that were nice. And, and, and then over time, I just kind of got used to it. I also surrounded myself really great community and good girlfriends over the years too. And, and kind of started to realize like, why would I settle for anyone who doesn't treat me as well as my girlfriends treat me? And, you know, and I, um, what was interesting was like, I kept being attracted to bad guys. Like mm -hmm. I was attracted to bad guys really up until my husband, <laughs> I mean, yeah. like truly, like even the, like the last guy I dated before my husband was like, I mean, I don't want to mean, but he was a total narcissist and like really not nice to me and like made me feel horrible about my past. Right. right. And so like, even, even up till that very last moment, I was dating bad guys, but it just started to get less and less comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's, I started to, I started to feel it like an itchy sweater on me. It, it no longer agreed with my values and it no longer agreed with how I saw myself. And so even those, even though those attractions were off and even though I kept dating in that direction, I just started to feel less and less comfortable in it. When they would say things like, you know, they don't know if they could get over my past, I felt like, you know, like Jesus could, and he's the king of the universe. So she better yeah. than him. Like, you know, it was like, it sort of, it sort of like struck something in me. Like it wasn't, it, it just felt like an itchy sweater. I think that's mm. the best way to, to say it. And when I met my husband, it was opposite. It felt like a cozy sweater. Mm. And, um, you know, and I, I'm so grateful the Lord gave me lots of time before setting him. I wasn't grateful while I was single in my thirties, but, yeah. <laughs> but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. He, he gave so much time before he sent, before he sent Jeff, because I think had I met Jeff in my twenties or even my early thirties, I would have written him off. Um, mm. Maybe I would have tried to go out on a date with him because he was a nice guy, but it wouldn't have felt comfortable yet. But when, um, when Jeff started loving me and valuing me, it actually felt right. It felt like this man sees me the way God sees me. Um, this man loves me for who I truly am. And, um, you know, it, if anything, it was like, wow, he's putting me on a stool that I'm going to fall off of real fast. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it felt comfortable. It actually felt, it actually felt good. And, and in some ways that was such a relief to me because I was like, here I am actually falling in love and it's with a good man. 
a kind man, a loving man, a man who's never known a day without God. You know, I mean, my husband is like the sweet youth group guy that Mm. I just would have like laughed at in high school. (laughs) Yeah. And isn't that interesting that you used to find comfort in something so uncomfortable for most of us in the world, right? But like that, if, if that's your norm, that is your comfort zone. And the fact yes. that God can transition something that our comfort looks different and, and it, it really helps us to see like the devil can feel comfortable too. Like he can oh, help us sure. feel very comfortable in, in sin, in, in really wayward paths because that's where he wants to keep you. He's not going to just make it dirty and despicable and uncomfortable. He's not going to make it that the itchy sweater. He wants us to dwell there because it's away from God. And so I love that illustration that, and I really commend you for the work that you're willing to do, the slow work you were willing to do in order to go from a comfort in one place and a comfort of certain norms to transitioning and acknowledging that it could be different and then finding comfort in a new place. And I, and I think that's a really good barometer for us. And, but we have to be careful too, to, to say like, is it comfortable because it's just habit? Is it comfortable because I've always done it this way? Or is it comfortable because it's God's way? Yeah. And I had to challenge myself, you know, I mean, I had to challenge myself to be obedient to what he asked of me, even when it felt uncomfortable because I trusted that he was good. Mm. And, you know, part of that for me was sexual purity. Like I actually, um, you know, I made a decision when I came to Christ to, um, to not have sex until I was married. And, and so, you know, I went from the sex worker and a highly promiscuous person to waiting for marriage and waited many years. And so in that, in that too, I, I, I surrendered to letting Jesus redeem that part of myself that was, that would get entangled in men through sexuality. And I think we're like, it, it, it was just this long exercise of trust, right? Of saying like, I don't understand this, God. I don't know why we're not allowed to have sex till we're married. It seems like a killjoy sometimes, whatever, you know, like, <laughs> but I, but, but I trusted him and I said, I'm going to surrender this to you trust that you're going to use it for good. And, and then like, you know, I did, I did see it. And and I realized like, wow, there were so many men that I would, you know, maybe go out on a date with and, and tell them that I was getting for marriage and then never hear from them again. And I saw the Lord protecting me from hmm. um, what could have been the wrong relationships. Right. Until, right. until my husband and, and I met and he had that same value and it was so easy. And so I think like those kinds of things where I just had to like do the like you said the hard work to trust God and say like I don't feel this I don't my body doesn't feel like waiting till marriage to have sex when I've been so sexual my whole life right. but I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to walk that out because you say you're good and and you say this is the way and I got to find out that he's good and mm-hmm. you know and that and that his um that 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 his word is true and that it's all for a reason and it, that reason is our good it's for our best Uh, because he he deeply desires that we would have our best partner and our best life. How amazing is Holly? Holy moly. I want to thank one final sponsor today and I want to talk to you about homeschooling. So parents who homeschool or want to homeschool often feel overwhelmed with all the work and responsibilities on your shoulders. And for the parents who have kids in school, sometimes you are trying to decide, you know, what the best place is for your kids. And it just feels daunting. 
So that's why Homeschool Magnet, our sponsor for today, is for parents just like you who are trying to make the best decisions for their kids but aren't really sure. Homeschool Magnet supports homeschooling families by providing students with instruction from world-class credential teachers in remote classrooms with their peers. So parents choose the best teachers for each student based on values and teaching approach to ensure each and every child is receiving exactly the education they desire. And this puts you in full control of your child's education without taking on all the daily responsibilities of lesson planning, pre-learning, teaching, tutoring, grading, you know, all those overwhelming parts. So each student will receive instruction in the four core subjects, Parents ultimately have the freedom to involve their student in as much or as little learning as they prefer based on their learning goals. So other online schools exist, but Homeschool Magnet is unique. Even though Homeschool Magnet includes a robust online learning environment, each student works with real physical learning materials guided by videos, instructions from their teachers. And this approach is kind of similar to like remote learning in a college situation, for example. Kids have daily access to their teachers, and it really just is a great option that I wanted you to know about. So to learn more about Homeschool Magnet student experience, go to homeschoolmagnet.com and join the growing waitlist. These are unprecedented times. School choices vary from state to state. And so check out homeschoolmagnet.com to simply get more information to see if it's a right fit for your family. Thanks to Homeschool Magnet for sponsoring the show. Now let's finish up with Holly. Now you have your daughter, your first daughter. She's what, 14 months, yeah. you said? Yes, oh. she's 14 months, uh, and, and she's perfect. I of got course a perfect she is. <laughs> of course she. How could she be anything <laughs> but? Oh, what that is just so wonderful, Holly. Tell me how motherhood has further enhanced Holly as a woman, and has it changed your perspective on on anything? I mean, you've already gone through so many chapters in your life and seasons of growth, and I would imagine lots of therapy and things like that, but. Motherhood just has this way of, of further refining in, in really challenging ways and also really beautiful ways. So tell me about that for you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Before I became a mom, I would hear people say like, oh, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's so rewarding. And I was really afraid of like the hardness of it, I yeah. think, um, because I've had such a hard life. Um, I don't know if this is just a grace the Lord has given me or if I've just had such a hard life that like it doesn't compare, but it's not hard for me. Um, loving her and being her mom is literally, I'm going to cry, but like it's the easiest thing I've ever, ever had to do. And I feel so blessed that, um, that I've gotten to do it. You know, I didn't, I didn't become a mom until age 39. And so, um, I didn't know, like I had to let, I had to lay that idea of being a mom on the altar kind of when I hit 35 and then 36 and there wasn't a husband and, um, and my husband and I got married when I was 36, but you know, in those kind of mid 30 years, I started letting, letting that go. Um, I, I think what's been interesting for me, I expected it to be sort of like refining in the ways I've heard about from other mothers where it's like, oh, I didn't realize how patient I was. Um, and, and, you know, and now I'm and now I'm growing in that because I'm having to be more patient as a mom. And those challenges may come for me, but it, but it's actually been the opposite for me. Mm. Um, I didn't I didn't realize how loving I was. Uh. I didn't realize how patient I was. I didn't realize how. Um, 
how generous I can be. I didn't realize how, um, how selfless I can be. I think I hadn't realized how far I'd come until I met her and, uh, and was just so, um, so ready to give up everything to love her. And I think, um, I think it's, been, it's just been the biggest surprise of my life, you know, like every, every other thing I've kind of walked through has been this like, um, like heavy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, walking through trauma, healing from trauma, trying to find love, like all of it has just kind of been this like heavy trudge through life. And becoming a mom has felt like the opposite. It just, it just feels like this gift from God. It feels like, uh, like a little ribbon on top of like the best present ever, you know, or, if, or like the, the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae. Um, and I think it's just given such perspective on life too. Like everything that I thought mattered or that I would stress about, like, you know, little things, running a business is stressful. And so I ran the business for about a year and a half before she was born. And, and, um, and I would get so stressed about things, you know, oh, this wholesale order is not being fulfilled in time. And the stakes seemed so high, but somehow becoming a mother, like just readjusted all those stakes for me. And it was like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Like what really matters is her eyes. <laughs> what really matters yeah. is her smile. What really matters is her snuggles. And, and the rest of it is, the rest of it is just work. It's just, um, it's just life, but this is what really matters. And so I think it's just been such a surprise for me, like um, such, such a surprise to see how far I've come, um, you know, and such a reminder that uh, that the lies of the enemy are so false. You know, I mean, he has lied to me my whole life and told me that I was going to be a violent, abusive, mean mother. Um, mm. He's lied to me my whole life and told me that, that it would be too hard for me, that I wouldn't be able to handle it, that I'm too sensitive or too impatient or too selfish. And those were lies. And I got to find that out the moment I met her. I got to find that out that, um, that, that I actually am the perfect mother for Havana. And it's Oh, the sweetest thing. Like my favorite thing in the world that I am is Havana's mom. Holly, I am just so happy for you. I am so happy for you. And I know that we can all find what you have found in your role as a mom in creating this business that you're so passionate about in doing the internal work to get you from point A to point B of healing, of self-awareness, of growth we all have that work to do. It looks very, very different, especially, yeah. you know, your particular story from most of us listening, but we all have that to do. And there's always that happiness to be found. And a lot of us have it yeah. right in front of us, but we're too busy <laughs> to even see yeah. it. Or, or we get caught up in the narratives of the world that motherhood should be much harder than it is. But really it's, it's pretty simple what our kids need from us. Mm-hmm. It really is, you know, but, but we, but we can get caught up in that and we can drown ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's what I think I see in a lot of moms is like, yeah. it's sort of this pressure to, um, to be perfect in it yeah. when really what they need is just love. Like, and you were, you were made to love this kiddo perfectly. Right. Like God didn't mess up in, in assigning you to each other, you know, he didn't mess up in making you their mom and, and, and then your kid. And, you know, and I also think about my relationship with my parents and, oh gosh, I couldn't have messed that up more. And they couldn't have messed it up more. I mean, it was messy. And yet, you know, and yet today we have a beautiful relationship. I love my parents. I love my mom. I miss my mom. We haven't gotten to see each other this whole pandemic. And and I'm, 
it, but you know, I'm mean, like the, the the fact that 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 mother parent relationship, it's almost like there's nothing that can really destroy it. Like you can mess up as far as possible and it can still all be redeemed. And I think that's a, a grace that we all need to lean into and remember too. And like those moments where it feels hard to just be like, this is, this is my person forever. And even if this moment feels hard, this relationship is eternal. This relationship is, um, is higher than that and yeah. higher than any moment. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay. So undoubtedly, all my listeners are loving you. They're going to want more of where you are and where you're going. They want to check out your jewelry. I'm just so grateful that you took the time this morning, Holly, to share your journey with us. Where can people find you online? And just re-remind us where we can find your jewelry. Yeah, so you can find me at, at Holly Christine Hayes. Um, you'll see a lot of pictures of my daughter and our animals there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then you can follow Sanctuary Project at at sanctuary underscore project on instagram um subscribe to our email list at sanctuaryproject.com and then you can go shop us on target.com um there'll be great holiday deals and specials going kind of the whole uh, month of november and december both on our site and target.com so i hope you come and, and say hi and shop yay awesome well i always ask my guests one final question holly and it's this what would you tell your pre-motherhood self Oh, you're going to be so much better than you think you are. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of that stuff I, I already said, but you're far more patient than you think you are. You're far more loving than you think you are. And this is just going to be a gift. Yeah. Holly, thank you. I'm proud of you. I mean, I did nothing, but I just feel such love uh, and pride for you and just such joy for you and your family. And what a lucky little girl Havana you have. <sighs> This has been so good. Jessica, it's so good to meet you. So good to meet you too. All the best to you and your family. And we're all going to check out Sanctuary Project. Yay. Holy cow. Can you even believe Holly? Thank you, Holly, for sharing your story, for being so brave 20 years ago to believe that life could be different for yourself to accept faith and the role that that could play in helping you to emerge from those circumstances, to helping believe in yourself because now she's giving that chance for second chances to all these women that she employs through Sanctuary Project. Let's support Holly and her jewelry line at Target.com, on SanctuaryProject.com. Let's just blow her up these holiday season and get somebody a gift that is really personal and special and helping these women to make so much of their lives and to not be defined by their past. So if you want to follow Holly anywhere or me anywhere, everything's linked over to ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at JessicaDalquist3 or on Facebook at Extraordinary Moms Podcast. Again, I am just always so grateful that you come here to listen every week. I'm grateful for the guests that give of their time and share their stories and their lessons. It's just such a beautiful community that I am grateful for every single day. So thank you, and we'll see you next week for another episode with another Extraordinary Mom. Bye.